Good morning. Thank you, Michelle. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for Wednesday, November 4th. It's November 2015. And um, we have a, a special guest uh, lecturer today, guest visiting professor that Dr. Darnell will introduce. But a couple of uh, quick reminders. It's November, so it's uh, open enrollment season. So just reminders that you have till. Uh, Monday evening at midnight to complete that. You have till Friday to get your flu vaccinations, which most people actually have, so that's a, a good celebration. Uh, I had some other dates up on the screen, but um, I'll remind that uh, the, the, the showing, the official showing of Raising of America is tomorrow night on New Hampshire Public Television at 7.30 p.m. We screened it here, um, and it's a wonderful program, but it also is going to be accompanied at 8.30 by a program made by the... Um, the, the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation, the Raising of New Hampshire, featuring members of our faculty, actually. So um, TiVo it if you don't get a chance to watch it. And um, without further ado, then, I don't want to take too much time further away from Dr. Fairchild, uh, our, um, uh, I guess, not quite emeritus, you're still active professor of pediatrics and physiology and neurobiology, Dr. Bob Darnall is going to introduce the Grand Rounds speaker. The code is on the next slide as well. It's O R A M. Zero. Zero. <laughs> um, it's a real pleasure uh, to introduce Karen Fairchild. Um, Karen is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. She's a neonatologist. Oh, I got to talk into the mic. I was talking loud. Okay. She's a professor of uh, pediatrics at uh, University of Virginia. She's a neonatologist. She graduated cum laude from Wellesley College in French, right? And <laughs> went to France and did some research and then um, got her MD at Duke um, and her pediatrics training at Johns Hopkins and her fellowship training at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. Karen has been active both clinically and academically um, she is the fellowship director uh, at UVA and has been involved nationally in NRP and any number of other things that relate to babies. Um, she's a member of the Society for Pediatric Research and the American Pediatric Society, which are the premier research uh, organizations in pediatrics. Uh, she has tons of publications. She's been very productive. Uh, her work uh, is very interesting and has to do with predicting adverse events um, from continuous monitoring of physiologic variables. But before she comes up, I want to talk about a special tie, a relationship between the University of Virginia and the Geisel School of Medicine. Uh, first of all, Karen works with John Catwinkle, who is an old-time neonatologist and apnea expert who graduated from Dartmouth uh, Medical School. Uh, and it's rumored that Ted Geisel uh, applied to the University of Virginia three times, <laughs> and he got rejected three times. And he was so upset that he said that he would always put himself in a position, position to look down at the University of Virginia. So he brought, bought a home that's still there that's up on the hill overlooking the rotunda. And you remember when he wrote, wrote his Grinch story of all the little who's running around in Whoville, Whoville is the University of Virginia. And 
the uh, mascot for the um, uh, UVA is the Cavalier, but those who live there call themselves Wahoos, or the Who's for short. So we have a Dr. Zeus Who from Whoville, <laughs> who is going to talk about some very interesting stuff. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Thank you. That was a great introduction. I hadn't heard that story, so I apologize. I apologize on the on behalf of the University of Virginia for uh, for Geisel not getting in. Um, That's all right. It's our game. <laughs> Bob asked me a year ago to give grand rounds on. Um, research that we've been doing at the University of Virginia on apnea. And I think all of you probably know that Bob knows more about apnea than I do. He's done some very elegant physiological research um, on apnea. And he really intimidated me because he also invited me to speak to the physiology group today at 4. So uh, today at 4, I'm going to be talking more about heart rate variability analysis and the physiology of that and how we use that to detect sepsis in babies. Um, and uh, this morning, I'm going to tell you about more recent research that I've been doing on apnea. I have no disclosures, and the CME code, as you already heard, is 0RAM. I don't know if the RAM is in caps or small letters. I'd like to start by acknowledging uh, our apnea and predictive monitoring research group at UVA. Um, if the Pointer works. This is Randall Mormon and John Catwinkle. They got an NIH grant back in 2009 to develop a novel apnea detect detection system that has allowed us to do some of the work I'm going to be showing you today. Um, John DeLoss at William & Mary is in the physics department, and his graduate student Mary Moore did a lot of the signal processing work. Doug Lake is a mathematician statistician. Rob Sinkin is my division chief. And then Bryn and Manisha our fellows, and Chris is a medical student who've contributed to some of this work. Now, a month ago, Sharon French sent me an email saying, you need some learning objectives, uh, three learning objectives. So I wrote some learning objectives, and she said, oh, by the way, here's a list from Dartmouth of acceptable learning objectives. And you know, I, my first objective has the, word, the verb understand. And it says here clearly that understand is not an acceptable verb for a learning objective. So apologies to Dartmouth for violating your rules. But I, I have to highlight a couple of the interesting ones. Sketch. I didn't use sketch. I didn't use um, rule on. That sounds kind of like law school or something. Um, or promulgate. I don't think I've ever used the verb promulgate anywhere. Um, so my learning objectives today are to understand uh, the etiology and differential diagnosis of apnea in preterm and term newborns. I realize that you can't measure understanding now after Dartmouth educated me on that. I realize you can't. Uh, you can't measure it, but hopefully you, you will understand a little bit more by the end of this talk. Um, recognize is on the list, physiologic and potentially pathologic breathing patterns in babies. And appreciate, that verb was also not on the list, um, but appreciate the importance and the challenges of big data research. If any of you are, are doing big data or trying to do big data, it's very hard. Um, and it can be very rewarding in the end. So what is apnea? The typical definition of central apnea is 20 seconds of no respiratory effort or at least 10 seconds of no respiratory effort with bradycardia or oxygen desaturation. 
And at UVA, so far, we've been studying central apnea. Preterm infants certainly have obstructive apnea, but we haven't really yet developed methods for studying airway obstruction. And the Brady DSAT definitions are variable. Um, the AAP and a lot of other people use um, less than 80 beats per minute as the threshold for bradycardia and less than 80% um, for desaturation. But others use uh, a drop in the baby's baseline heart rate by 60% from baseline um, or two less than 60% of baseline, or a drop in the SpO2 to less than 85%. At UVA, for various reasons, John Catwinkle decided to use a threshold of 100 beats per minute for bradycardia and require both bradycardia and oxygen desaturation less than 80%. So a fairly rigorous definition of, of uh, apnea. So I'm going to give you two cases. The first one is a term baby. This is a real case. Uh, this, an outside hospital called us for, um, to transfer a baby who they thought might have cardiac disease, and the story was that the baby was having intermittent oxygen desaturations, um, cyanosis and desats to less than 70%, and in between the episodes, the baby was fine. Um, and the history and review systems and physical examination were normal, and when the baby got to us, it became clear that the baby was having central apnea. So is this cardiac disease? Of course not. This is central apnea. And what could it be? So the differential diagnosis includes a seizure, um, babies with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy or a central nervous system infarct can have uh, a seizure manifested as apnea. Um, you can have CNS dysfunction without seizures, so babies with severe or profound HIE or brain or brainstem injury or malformation can have apnea. Uh, and based on the history and the uh, physical exam on this baby, we were pretty sure this baby uh, wasn't having seizures. Uh, there is CCHS, um, Central Congenital Hypoventilation Syndrome, which I'll talk a little bit more about. Um, and then finally, if the baby is also very sick, then it, um, it could be severe sepsis with meningitis or with or without meningitis. But if you have a well baby with apnea, a term well baby with apnea, it's not sepsis. And it turns out just watching this baby, you could tell when the baby was asleep, the baby was apneic. When the baby was awake, the baby was breathing fine and looked totally normal. So we could tell even before we sent the mutation analysis that this baby had CCHS. And does anybody know who this is? Ondine. Ondine, uh, uh, the story goes, was a water nymph. And she fell in love with a mortal, a mortal man. And uh, her lover said to her, every waking breath will be a testimony of my love. And he cheated on her. And so the, the story goes that either Ondine or the king of the water nymphs put a curse on this guy and said, if you fall asleep, you'll stop breathing and you'll die. So that's Ondine's curse. And now CCHS is, is not called Ondine's curse anymore because it turns out it's the king of the water nymphs curse. Um, <laughs> but uh, this is a fairly rare, although probably not as rare as previously thought, um, disorder, which is, involves a mutation in the, a 
paired homeobox gene on chromosome 4. So FOX2B mutation, it's a um, triplet repeat mutation. So um, 90% of individuals with CCHS have um, a polyalanine re repeat. Um, most of us in the room have 20 alanines in this gene. And if you have 26 to about 36 repeats, uh, you have central hypoventilation. And the treatment is tracheostomy and uh, long-term ventilation. Uh, there's some evidence, especially potentially people with fewer of these polyalanine repeats, that you might be able to do phrenic nerve stimulation and get them off of chronic ventilation. The baby that we had is now three years old and still on a ventilator, but otherwise doing well. And 20% of individuals with CCHS also have Hirschsprung's disease. So the second case is a preterm infant, and everybody knows that all preemies have apnea. But this is a baby who had too much apnea. So, and this is again a true case. I was a fellow, um, and I was on call for the weekend, and we had this 26-week twin who was three weeks old, was on CPAP, um, was on caffeine, was, was, seemed to be doing fine. And then on Saturday, the baby had increased apnea. And so we gave him extra caffeine. Unfortunately, the next day, the baby had overwhelming gram-negative sepsis, uh, developed septic shock, and two days later, the baby died. So this case still really sticks in my mind. Um, I'm still wondering whether if on Saturday, instead of just giving the baby more caffeine, if, if we knew that the baby was in the early stages of sepsis and had treated then, if the outcome would have been different. So what are the pathologic features that uh, contribute to apnea other than just prematurity? Um, well, I highlighted in green the factors uh, in term babies, intracranial pathology, um, metabolic disorders uh, can cause seizures that present as apnea. Um, certain drugs, of course, opiates, prostaglandins can cause apnea um, in a term or preterm baby. And then uh, preterm infants uh, with thermal stress, if they get overheated, uh, can have apnea. Um, certainly sepsis in some babies, probably through prostaglandin release, is associated with increased apnea. Um, hyperoxia can tip preterm infants over into apnea, and hypoxia can either make them tachypnic or apneic. And there's a question mark by GE reflux. There's a lot of debate. Certainly uh, babies who have uh, liquid at the back of their throat have a laryngeal chemoreflex, so laryngospasm, and can have temporary airway obstruction from reflux. But generally, preterm infants all have apnea, they all have reflux. Usually, the two are not temporally correlated. Control of breathing is a huge topic, and so I'm not going to try to cover all of the things on this slide, but I at least that there are a lot of things that are important that I'm not covering today. I will talk a little bit about chemoreceptors and about the brainstem, which is the center for respiratory rhythmogenesis. Um, I won't talk too much about nerves. Of course, the phrenic nerve and other nerves and neurotransmitters are important to regulate breathing. And then muscles of respiration, the diaphragm is the key muscle of respiration, but um, babies with lung disease um, and preterm infants with immature chest walls have use accessory muscles, intercostals and other accessory muscles to breathe. Um, 
There are a number of respiratory reflexes that are very interesting, but in interest of time, I won't cover today. And then the pharmacologic factors, like I said, there are certain drugs that cause apnea, and predominantly the drug we use to treat apnea is caffeine, which I'll briefly touch on. And then disorders of control of breathing that we see um, in the NICU and beyond, CCHS I already talked about, apnea prematurity I'll talk a little more about. And then SIDS is, is not my area of expertise, and I suspect Dr. Darnell has given you grand rounds in the past about SIDS, um, and I will mention one baby that we had that died of SIDS. So chemoreceptors are um, sensors for oxygen, carbon dioxide, pH, and they regulate breathing. The peripheral arterial chemoreceptors, or PACs, um, are predominantly located in the carotid body in the neck, um, to some extent in the aortic arch, and they mostly are oxygen sensors. And in contrast, the central chemoreceptors in the brainstem um, are mostly sense carbon dioxide. And there are multiple neurotransmitters involved in breathing control, adenosine, GABA, serotonin, dopamine. Again, I'm not going to go into all of those, um, but uh, caffeine works through blocking adenosine receptors. This uh, schematic was, was made by Estelle Goda, who has studied peripheral chemoreceptors at Hopkins. She's a neonatologist, and this highlights the fact that both increased and decreased uh, sensitivity of peripheral arterial chemoreceptors can contribute to dysregulated control of breathing in um, patients in the NICU. So what you have on the left is um, preterm birth and sustained uh, hypoxia can cause increased um, sensitivity of these PACs, and the consequences are periodic breathing apnea. Um, and then things like um, prenatal nicotine exposure, chronic lung disease, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, chronic hypoxia can decrease PAC sensitivity, and then that can result in reduced hypoxic arousal, airway obstruction, increased risk for um, sudden infant death syndrome. Now, as I think all of you probably know, the medulla in the brainstem regulates respirations, but it, it in fact, regulates all vital signs. This is a, a diagram and some um, uh, autoradiograms from a review in New England Journal of Medicine on SIDS by Hannah uh, Kinney and Brad Thatch. And on the top here, you can see that the medulla is right under the pons, and there are all these different uh, medullary nuclei, and the pre-Botzinger complex in purple um, is the one that triggers respiration, and then other medullary nuclei regulate upper airway control, temperature, heart rate, blood pressure. So can't live without your medulla. Um, and then in the bottom, you see there, there's some evidence in a number of studies that some babies who die of SIDS have abnormal serotonergic uh, neuro, neuron number or receptor number. Uh, and this is an example of a control infant who has um, bright spots uh, representing serotonergic uh, neurons and a baby who died of SIDS who clearly has a deficiency in serotonin um, in the serotonin pathway. 
Now, I'm just briefly going to talk about treatment of apnea. Anybody who has spent any time in the NICU knows that all of the preterm babies are on caffeine, which is, it turns out, a good drug. Um, caffeine uh, is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, but it's also an adenosine receptor antagonist. Um, and the way that it prevents or decreases apnea of prematurity is through blocking adenosine receptors. And the cap of prematurity um, of caffeine. And this was a study of 2006 preterm infants randomized to caffeine or placebo. And it was Barbara Schmidt was the principal investigator who's now at CHOP, was formerly in Canada. It was published in New England Journal in 2006, which is convenient since that was the number of babies they studied. Um, 2006 and beyond. So the first papers showed that babies who got caffeine had a lower rate of bronchopulmonary dysplasia compared to babies in the placebo group. So that was a big difference and an important effect. Um, and that's probably because they spent less time on a ventilator because they were having less apnea. And then they published two-year follow-up on those babies and showed a lower rate of cerebral palsy or, and other neurodevelopmental impairment in the babies that got caffeine. And now they're publishing five-year outcomes showing, again, some improved neurologic outcome in cognition and um, um, sort of executive functioning in the babies that got caffeine compared to placebo. So we think caffeine is a good drug. Babies still have a ton of apnea, even though they're getting caffeine. Um, and the other thing that we use is CPAP. Continuous positive airway pressure helps to stent open the larynx and the pharynx and to reduce the airway collapse that preterm infants have. Uh, and most apnea in preterm infants is mixed. There's a central and an obstructive component. So caffeine and CPAP are our mainstays of therapy. And then, of course, the main thing is tincture of time. And eventually, babies outgrow apnea. Um, by 32 weeks, um, we generally don't empirically treat for apnea of prematurity because babies over 32 weeks don't have much. Um, and babies under 32 weeks who are on caffeine, we usually stop it somewhere between 32 and 34 weeks. And then by the time babies are approaching term, so around 35 to 40 weeks postmenstrual age, um, they stop having clinically significant apnea requiring stimulation. So they still have some little self-resolved apnea spells even after NICU discharge. Um, but usually by about 36, 37 weeks, babies are ready to go home from the NICU. They pass their seven-day apnea countdown. Um, and the, the general rule is don't send them home on a monitor. So how do we study apnea? Um, this is a screenshot from the UVA bedside monitor in the NICU. And the top tracing is the electrocardiogram, which is six seconds of ECG signal. And then the second line there in yellow is the chest impedance respiratory rate. Um, and the bottom is six seconds of the pulse oximetry um, tracing. And then in the middle, we pull up two minutes of heart rate and SpO2 and chest impedance respiratory rate. So if you are in the NICU and you walk by um, the baby's monitor, you can see that about a minute ago, this baby did something. So it was breathing fine, then took a big sigh, then paused, 
and then started breathing regularly again. So that looks a little bit like maybe a really tiny short apnea, less than 10 seconds, little dip in SpO2 to, you know, mid 80s. Uh, so it's really not a significant desaturation. Nothing happened to the heart rate. So that is definitely not a UVA ABD because you have to have both desaturation and bradycardia. And, um, but it, it was a little bit of something. But the fact is these things are happening all the time in NICU babies. And the only way historically that we've known that babies were having apnea is if the nurse has time if she sees that, or he or she sees that it happen and has time to go and write it down in the medical record. And so a lot of times it's not seen, and even if it's seen, it's not considered clinically significant, so it's not written down. So the medical record documentation of apnea is, is really the tip of the iceberg, and I'll show you more data to support that. So there's that little event, and it basically didn't happen because nobody wrote it down. And within 24 hours, the monitor wipes out that data. So you can't access it after, after 24 hours. So UVA, back in 2009, developed a cardiorespiratory monitoring system. And as I mentioned before, John Catwinkle and Randall Mormon got a, an NIH grant to do this. So they hired a bunch of engineers and figured out how to harness all of the data from the 51 bedside monitors through this, um, this system called Bedmaster, which is a central network server. So we're able to, there's a graphic user interface in the NICU, we're able to look at events, but importantly, we're able to store all the events in these, um, this cluster of computers uh, that we have that has over 100 terabytes of, of storage space. We currently have about 10 terabytes of data since 2009 on basically all waveform and vital sign data on every baby in the NICU, um, preterm and term. And we have um, electronic medical record, EPIC, uh, which you all have as well, and a central data repository. Unfortunately, we're not able to directly send data into our physiologic database. We have to do that manually, which is very time consuming. So we hire medical students and residents and fellows and faculty. I spent a lot of time putting, transferring clinical data from EPIC into our clinical database um, to be able to do this research. Um, so big, big data research is hard. Um, but here's what we um, have been able to measure in babies. ABD, so apnea with bradycardia and desaturation. And top to bottom here, what you see is heart rate in green with the green dotted line is our threshold for bradycardia of 100 beats per minute. The next thing in royal blue is the electrocardiogram signal. And then also in royal blue is the chest impedance respirations. Um, and then in light blue is the SpO2 with our threshold for desaturation indicated by the dotted line at 80%. And basically what our engineers did and signal processors is they figured out how to filter out the heartbeat artifact, because it turns out when babies are having apnea, their heart is beating strongly, and the impedance, the monitor picks up the heartbeat as breaths. So all of a sudden, the monitor will say that the baby's breathing 150. Well, that's the heart rate. It's not the respiratory rate. So our engineers figured out how to filter out the heartbeat artifact, and then they filtered out the motion artifact, because babies are moving all the time. So they used a high-pass filter for that. And then um, 
the computer looks at the chest impedance, filtered chest impedance signal and looks for low variance um, epics. And if it's more than 10 seconds and associated with a drop in heart rate less than 100 and a drop in SpO2 less than 80, it's called an ABD. ABD 10 would be at least 10 seconds of apnea with bradycardia and desaturation. And this was published in 2012. Um, a number of papers have come out of this work, and there's just one that I'm going to highlight um, here, which was Brookford Gallus, who is a fellow and now in faculty at UVA, um, and the rest of the group put together this paper showing that the automated apnea analysis by the computer is more accurate than medical record documentation. And anybody who spent any time in the unit and the NICU knows that this tr is true. And there are a couple other publications showing the same thing. But this is the first time using a computer algorithm that we've been able to measure um, ABD events. So you can see here that there were 10,000 ABDs where the apnea lasted at least 20 seconds and 5,000 where the apnea was at least 30 seconds. And the um, medical record documentation was only present in 20% of the ABD-10s and 26% of the ABD-20s and 30s. So only about a quarter of these events or less are being documented in the medical record. And then the other thing we found is that the algorithm detects a lot more events than even the, the bedside monitor is detecting. Um, so our monitors are supposed to alarm when the chest impedance goes flat for 15 seconds. But what we found um, was that for the ABDs where the apnea lasted more than 20 seconds based on the computer algorithm of flat chest impedance, only 18% of the time did the apnea alarm go off. Um, and 23% of the time when the apnea lasted more than 30 seconds. The bradycardia and desaturation alarms went off in about two-thirds of cases, but there were about 25% of ABD, ABD events that lasted 20 to 30 seconds of apnea, which with even longer bradycardia and desaturation, 25% of the time no alarms went off. So, you know, alarms are... Uh, there are limitations to the, the monitor alarms. We found that some infants have very long apnea. This was surprising, especially to John Catwinkle. He said, there's no way that a baby stops breathing for 60 seconds in the NICU. We wouldn't let that happen. <laughs> but the truth is, we do let that happen. And part of the reason we let that happen is because the chest impedance goes flat, but it takes a while for the heart rate to drop and the SpO2 to drop. Some of these babies have really amazing reserve. Um, and we studied a bunch of these events and published it uh, last year. And we compared the long versus short apnea events because the babies having long events also had short events. So what we looked at here was um, the heart rate on the top, um, pointer, heart rate on the top and then the SpO2 on the bottom for ABD events where the apnea started at time zero and then lasted up till 130 seconds. And we studied 100 events where the apnea lasted 10 to 20 seconds, 100 events where it lasted 30 to 40 seconds, 46 events where the apnea duration was 60 to 80 seconds, 
and 40 events where the apnea duration was 80 up to 132 seconds. And there's two things you can see on this graph. One is that the heart rate dropped much more slowly for the long apnea events, because usually what happens is once the heart rate drops and the bradycardia alarm goes off, either the baby finally recovers um, or the nurse finally goes over and terminates the apnea by stimulating the baby. Because we, we you know, even me, I pay much more attention to bradycardia alarms. Um, the apnea alarms, you kind of look up and you say, oh, that baby's going to recover. And then 60 seconds later, if the baby becomes bradycardic, then I finally go over and stimulate the baby. And then the other thing we found is that the SpO2 starts higher for the longer apneas, which totally makes sense. Also, if you blow this up, you can see that the sh short apnea events, the SpO2, starting SpO2 is in the low 90s, um, and the long apnea events, the SpO2 starts in the mid 90s. So the baby has more reserve and is on that part of the oxygen hemoglobin desaturation curve that's more flat and not on the steep slope. Um, the other thing that we've been studying um, more recently and just recently published a paper um, on is periodic breathing. And periodic breathing, I think um, probably everybody here has, has heard of it and knows what it looks like. It's, it's pauses in breathing and then regular breathing, and it's at least three cycles of pause, breathe, pause, breathe. All babies do this, term babies, preterm babies. They do it during sleep. It's generally not pathologic. It's generally not associated with desaturation and bradycardia. But just to show you what it looks like with our, um, our uh, graphical depiction, this is um, clearly regular respirations here. This is the filtered chest impedance signal with regular breathing for um, almost two minutes. And then the baby goes into periodic breathing, pause, breathe. And this baby had a lot of what we call entrainment of SpO2 with deep dips in the saturations. That's a little bit unusual, and I'll talk more about that later. Little dips in the heart rate as well, to the point that our apnea detector saw a whole bunch of little apneas, but one of them was actually an AVD, where the bradycardia and desaturation thresholds met the definition for a little short AVD event. So periodic breathing, as I mentioned, is repetitive cycles of of um, apnea and breathing, it's normal. Um, and it is suppressed by CPAP and caffeine. So some of the therapies that we use for apnea in the NICU also suppress periodic breathing. And again, usually not associated with significant drop in oxygen levels and heart rate. But the last statement here, exaggerated, periodic breathing may be pathologic. I'm gonna talk more about that. So we've characterized periodic breathing quantitatively, but not yet qualitatively. So just to summarize what we've done so far, um, our graduate student, Mary Moore, as part of her PhD thesis, developed a wavelet transform analysis of the apnea tags identified in the chest impedance signal and um, developed a way to quantitate periodic breathing, which was validated extensively by multiple neonatologists um, uh, and was shown to have, I think, 96% sensitivity and 90% specificity for detecting episodes of periodic breathing um, validated by 
neonatologists looking at hundreds of blinded, looking at hundreds of um, of, of uh, tracings of heart rate, EKG, and um, SpO2. And we have characterized the gestational and chronologic age um, predilections for periodic breathing, and we've found some associations, some pathologic associations with this extreme periodic breathing. Now, on the qualitative side, there are ways you can look at periodic breathing that I think are important, but that we haven't done yet. So one thing is looking at the morphology of the, of the breaths in periodic breathing. There can be a spindle, like chain stokes respirations in adults with congestive heart failure. There's small breaths and big breaths, then small breaths again, so it looks like a spindle. Or there's decrescendo, where there's a deep breath and then smaller and smaller breaths. Um, sometimes there are sighs, either at the end or the beginning of the respiratory part of periodic breathing. Um, and then the cycle length. Generally, the cycle length is about 15 to 20 seconds early on, and then it gets short as the babies, shorter as the babies get older. And we haven't yet looked at the breathing to apnea time ratio. It's generally about 1.2 to 1 breathing to apnea. Um, but we, we haven't really studied that yet. Other people have to some extent. The number of breaths in the cycle, generally the babies are tachypnic during the breathing phase of periodic breathing, but how tachypnic? Like is 120 breaths per minute more pathologic than 60 breaths per minute in the breathing phase? We haven't studied that yet. And then sleep state dependence. Babies should have periodic breathing generally during quiet sleep, I've seen both active and quiet sleep periodic breathing, but I think apnea is more common during active sleep and periodic breathing during quiet sleep. Um, and this is just a, an example of a fairly typical morphology of periodic breathing that I'm used to seeing, um, where they're at the end of the apneic phase, the baby takes one or two deep breaths and then goes into more regular breaths, and then smaller breaths, and then apnea again. And I, when I first started looking at these tracings about five or six years ago, I thought that they looked like little ducklings. So, um, so how much central apnea and periodic breathing is normal for preterm infants? And of course, this is a baby about to fall asleep, and then a different baby asleep. That's when the baby should have periodic breathing. Um, we studied uh, periodic breathing and apnea in 1,211 um, infants less than 35 weeks gestation in the UVA NICU, and we just submitted these papers, and I think they're going to, I'm about to submit a revision, so I think they're going to get published in the next couple of months. Um, but what we found is um, in the histograms, we looked at, this is the number of infants in each gestational age week. And the black fill is the numbers who had periodic breathing. So you can see that essentially all babies have some periodic breathing. I think the only reason there's some white in this bar is that these babies went home early before, um, before periodic breathing peaked. So we only had a couple of days of monitoring on them. Um, in contrast, apnea, this is ABD10s, same thing, gestational age weeks from 22 to 34. Um, essentially all babies less than 29 weeks have apnea uh, of prematurity with bradycardia desaturations. And um, only about 
50 to 80% of babies over 30 weeks um, have some amount of apnea, the black fill being babies who had at least one ABD10 event. And the reviewers actually looked at this and they said, well, that's interesting. 50% of 34-weekers had an ABD10. That kind of goes against what we as neonatologists see. But remember, the UVA system measures ABDs irrespective of whether they happen during feeding, whether they're self-resolved, um, whether they happen right after immunizations or something else. So, so a lot of these events are probably clinically not important, um, but, but they happen, and they happen at discharge. Um, we looked at how many little short ABD events are happening in babies in the seven-day apnea countdown that we do, and 50% of babies are having little ABD events that are not recorded and not considered clinically significant before they go home not on a monitor. Um, so basically this shows you over here that um, apnea starts early and then it goes down by um, sort of late preterm postmenstrual age, whereas periodic breathing starts low and peaks at a couple weeks of age. And then the next um, uh, slide shows you two heat maps. On the left is apnea and on the right is periodic breathing. So just from a thousand feet you can see that apnea and periodic breathing are temporally different. Um, and what it is here is on the y-axis is gestational age um, in weeks, and then on the x-axis, postmenstrual age. And the heat map shows you that ABD10s are very common, and there are about anywhere from six to eight uh, ABD10s per day in babies of low gestational age at low postmenstrual age. But by about 32 to 36 weeks, um, babies are having much fewer events um, in the range of one for the babies 31 to 34 weeks, and then about three for the, the younger gestational age babies. Periodic breathing, on the other hand, is more common in the higher gestational age babies and more common at a couple of weeks of age. So the hot spot for periodic breathing is a 32-weeker who's two weeks old. And that's shown here, too, is that the, the more mature premature babies actually have more periodic breathing than the less mature premature babies. Um, and some of that might be caffeine and CPAP. Um, so we're still trying to work out why the micropremies really don't have that much periodic breathing. Now, we had two babies who died um, who had exaggerated periodic breathing, and it was very distressing. Now, all of this research that I'm showing you is behind the scenes. So clinicians don't see the periodic breathing analysis. They don't see the apnea analysis. All of the decisions about clinical care are based on regular uh, methods of detecting apnea, which is the nurses tell us if the baby's having apnea. Um, but we got a phone call um, a couple of years ago about a 32-week twin who was in our NICU for three weeks. She went home at 34 weeks, um, 35 weeks, and three days later, um, or no, I'm sorry, she went home at three weeks of age, so she was 35 weeks corrected when she went home. And two weeks later, we got a phone call saying that she had died. Uh, she'd been found dead um, in her crib by her mom, and immediately had, you know, had a destiny investigation, had a forensic autopsy, and, and um, came up with the diagnosis of SIDS. We brought her twin in, of course, for a sleep study, and um, she 
was fine. We did send her home on a monitor after that. But, but then we looked back, and actually I got a call from Doug Lake. John Catwinkle and I got a call from Doug Lake saying, because we said, this baby died of SIDS. Let's go back and look at apnea, whether the baby had apnea. Well, during her NICU stay, she had no documented apnea. She had one computer-detected ABD event that was more than a week before discharge, but she had unbelievable periodic breathing. So Doug Lake, our mathematician, he sent us a movie of an hour, and he said this baby basically was in periodic breathing all the time. And that was shocking to us because it totally flew under the radar of the clinicians in the unit. So this is what this baby looked like. She had 40 to 60% of the time of, of every day in periodic breathing during, um, you know, especially from like 10 to 20 days. And this is when she went home. Her sister also had generally more periodic breathing than all the other 32-weekers. This is the average amount of periodic breathing for um, 52 other 32-weekers. So less than 10% is normal. Uh, the twin had 20%, didn't die of SIDS. The one that died of SIDS had 40 to 60% of the time in periodic breathing. Very abnormal. Um, the other baby that we had um, with exaggerated periodic breathing was also a distressing case. This was a 25-weeker um, who was five weeks old, stable, in the transitional nursery, feeding and growing. Um, and she suddenly, you know, had profound apnea, coded, you know, tried to keep her alive for a couple hours, and then she, she just died. And unfortunately, we didn't get an autopsy, but all evidence pointed to acute sepsis. And um, what we found, though, again, we called Doug Lake, and we said, you've got to look at her periodic breathing and apnea and whatever. And here's what we found. This is 15 hours before she died. Her periodic breathing had gone up tenfold over her baseline. So she went from less than 5% periodic breathing to more than 50% of the time in periodic breathing. Very abnormal. This is, the, just, this is just 10 minutes of chest impedance where you can see the periodic breathing. And you can see she had a lot of entrainment. SpO2 and heart rate was declining with these breathing pauses. But the, none of this was clinically recognized. This was, you know, on a Sunday night. Um, the nurse in retrospect said, well, she was maybe acting up a little bit around midnight and it was like 1 or 2 a.m. that she died. Um, but she was doing this at noon the day before. So 15 hours before anybody knew she was sick, she was, she was doing this breathing pattern. Very abnormal. Um, and one of the things that I'm going to talk more to the physiology group this afternoon about is could, the, could there be a link between periodic breathing and SIDS in some babies? This is probably a very small subset of SIDS deaths. Um, and could some of those desaturations, even though they're fairly mild, but they're less than 80%, could the chronic mild hypoxemia lead to inadequate arousal? And then maybe you have another one or two hits, like overheating or a mild virus or something else that tips the baby into irreversible apnea from which they don't arouse. And um, in interest of time, I'm not going to go too much into this, these graphs, but Bob remembers these graphs because he published it in 2010. Um, so this is a study in rats um, in which the rats, and, and Bob will correct me this afternoon if I'm wrong, but the rats were either 5, 15, or 25 days old, and they were exposed to eight trials of hypoxia. And this was 
5% oxygen for three minutes. So this is pretty severe hypoxia. We wouldn't let babies probably have this degree of hypoxia ever, I hope, in the NICU, intentionally. <laughs> anyway, but, any, but what you see here is that with each successive hypoxia exposure, the latency time to arousal um, got longer and longer. And this is room air control up here. So there is definitely um, some thought that chronic intermittent hypoxia might predispose some otherwise vulnerable babies to inadequate arousal and, um, and death. What are some of the other clinical associations with extreme periodic breathing? After we found this baby that died of SIDS and this baby that died of sepsis, our radar, or at least mine and the fellow who's working with me on this project, we were walking through the NICU looking for babies with exaggerated periodic breathing. And we found a bunch of them. And we sort of sat there and watched them for hours and days. And we said to everybody, watch that baby, because something bad might happen. And nothing happened. And um, so I can't tell you that exaggerated periodic breathing is always bad. But we identified um, and are hopefully about to publish uh, a um, of, of those 1,211 babies less than 35 weeks at birth who I was um, showing you their apnea and periodic breathing, we identified 76 babies who had a periodic breathing Z-score greater than six, so six sigma. These babies had six standard deviations more than the, meet, the average for their gestational age and postmenstrual age. And then we looked um, around the time of that 12-hour episode of extreme periodic breathing for stuff, for, you know, bad things or, you know, stresses, um, bad events. And what we found was that 14% um, of the time there was suspected or proven sepsis or neck within 24 hours of extreme periodic breathing. And 4% of the time the babies had just had surgery within 24 hours before, so potentially anesthesia effect. 12% um, of the time they had just had an immunization within 24 hours before, which we know can, in preemies, maybe flip them over into a little bit more apnea and maybe now a little more periodic breathing. 14% um, of the time caffeine had been discontinued within a week before. Um, and we've seen this in quite a few babies where they have a little spike in their periodic breathing after they come off caffeine. And, you know, more than half the time, they had a ton of periodic breathing and no event was identified. So I'm not saying periodic breathing is always pathologic, but I really think it's sometimes pathologic. Um, and then we also looked at how often babies have increased apnea or periodic breathing in the 24-hour period before they're diagnosed with septicemia, positive blood culture on the left, or necrotizing enterocolitis on the right. So these um, graphs uh, depict 28 cases of septicemia and 21 cases of neck. Um, and you can see, and this is seconds of apnea per 24 hours, the black dots are two days before septicemia or neck, and the red dots are one day before. And then the arrow shows the direction of change. So essentially, some of the babies had not much apnea, before or after. Some of them had 
a drop, you know, a few of them actually had a drop in how much apnea they were having. But a, a number of babies, and this is a log scale of seconds of apnea, had a spike in seconds of apnea and a spike in pure, or a spike in um, before septicemia or neck. And then in the bottom, it's periodic breathing. So again, um, black is two days before, and then the red dot is one day before. So quite a few babies had um, a significant increase in seconds of apnea um, or periodic breathing before sepsis and neck. And the big question is, um, when you have periodic breathing with entrainment of SpO2 and heart rate, so there's little dips in heart rate and SpO2 like this baby had, is there a Brady-DSAT metric that would be useful for early detection of sepsis and neck? Like that baby I started with at the beginning, that baby who on Saturday had apnea and on Sunday had overwhelming gram-negative sepsis. On Saturday, if we had had some kind of measure of increased apnea that made us think this baby has sepsis associated apnea, would that have enabled us to start antibiotics sooner and, and change the outcome? Um, so what we came up with, and this is with um, this is a collaboration with Columbia University, so Rakesh Sani and Joe Eisler at Columbia, and then Doug Lake and Randall Warman and John Cantwinkle and I are putting together a paper on this. But we've found some cases, and it's not the majority of cases, it's probably about 20% of babies with sepsis and neck have a spike in and the cross-correlation of heart rate and SpO2 uh, before they are obviously sick. Time zero is when we got an x-ray that said, okay, this baby has neck, now we need to give antibiotics and keep the baby NPO. So this, this baby read the book, or read the hypothesis, and understood it, and did the right thing. Um, and then this is, represents 71 cases of sepsis and neck. And this is um, the heart rate SpO2 cross-correlation on the x-axis, and the relative risk of diagnosis of positive blood culture sepsis or neck within the next 24 hours. So it's kind of like the HERO score, if you've heard about that, which is the heart rate characteristic score that was developed at UVA that if it goes up, it's the fold increased chance that in the next 24 hours, the baby's gonna crash with an acute septic illness. Um, so you can see when the cross-correlation of heart rate and SpO2 um, goes up to 0.6, that's two-fold increased chance that the baby's gonna crash in the next 24 hours. And if it goes up to 0.8, it's a three-fold increase. So we're kind of trying to work on whether adding respiratory analysis to heart rate characteristics analysis would, will be good for predictive monitoring. And so future directions for our group. Um, one is that just uh, last month we submitted an application for um, this PREVENT U01, which NHLBI decided they wanted to put some money toward um, understanding prematurity-related ventilatory control. Um, and so these are prospective observational mechanistic studies to see whether apnea is linked to chronic lung disease or BPD in preterm infants. So we're hoping to get some funding to be able to extend the apnea um, algorithm to other centers and, um, and, and actually look at important outcomes. And then we're starting to do some obstructive apnea studies and see whether Brady-DSATs or a good surrogate measure for obstructive apnea. So we're doing capnography, measuring exhaled carbon dioxide to look at obstructive apnea. And we're doing some caffeine studies. We're looking at 
whether when we give a caffeine bolus or when we stop caffeine, what kind of impact does that have on desaturations? Um, and then we're developing methods for inter-institution collaborations um, in big data research. And this is my last slide. I just want to show you. This is the rotunda at UVA. Has anybody, a lot of you have visited UVA, so you recognize the rotunda. Um, designed by Thomas Jefferson, built in the 1820s. Um, this, was, this, this is the rotunda back in the 1820s. And um, unfortunately, there was a big fire there in 1895. Um, and the rotunda, uh, a lot of it was destroyed, and you can see here's, here's the students and faculty kind of um, watching. <laughs> but some of them are like eating lunch and watching the fire. Um, and, and, and then it was restored back to this, and you can see that to the top of the columns were starting to crumble, so they were restoring that. Now the whole thing is behind scaffolding because in 2019, that'll be the 200th anniversary of University of Virginia. And my son is a first year at UVA, so he's class of 19. And, and at his graduation, all this scaffolding will be down and the rotunda is gonna look really good. <laughs> all right, thank you for your attention. Dr. Fairchild is teaching at noon with uh, those interested in cleaning the house staff in what room? 5A. 5A, the usual location. And, and 